This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them. One from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coast to Coast, only on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams in Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. I write the blog Law Sites and another blog called Media Law, both of which are at LegalLine.com. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Well, today, Bob, we're going to be talking about legal technology, which might be of not too much of a surprise to our listeners. Um, some people in the legal world say that the growth in technology is whether it's software, hardware, or telecommunications, is both a blessing and a curse. Of course, the latest technology products make running a law office more efficient than ever. Information gets around the world in seconds, and clients can be in touch with their attorneys any time of the day, wherever they are. Uh, and, of course, legal research is now just a few keystrokes away. Well, all of that leads to pretty much of a great economy of scale. It means bigger profits, and not everyone benefits in the legal technology world, though. And there are some concerns about the people who used to perform those jobs. That's right. There's even been uh, some unemployment because uh, some of the paperwork that used to take hours has been reduced to minutes uh, thanks to the legal programs. Uh, law firms now outsource more of their work, research, and, and other kinds of tasks to foreign labor markets. Uh, and there's uh, other kind of downsides to technology. And there's also been some employment that's incurred, occurred because of it and th- because of some uh, a process called insourcing. Instead of paying outsiders to do certain legal tasks, firms are setting up specialty in-house departments for a lot less money. Well, to help us discuss this uh, kind of double-edged sword of legal technology are, are two people who are uh, well-prepared to talk about it. Our first guest is... Ron Friedman. Ron is the president of Prism Legal Consulting, which advises law firms on technology strategy and uh, legal software companies on marketing and technology. Uh, A lawyer, Friedman, has held uh, senior management positions at two large law firms and at two legal software companies. Ron also uh, is well-known to bloggers as author of the law blog Strategic Legal Technology. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, Bob, our other guest is Ross Kodner. Ross is the president and founder of Wisconsin's Microlaw Incorporated. Microlaw is an international legal technology consulting firm and legal exclusive training company, having served over 850 law firms, corporate and government legal departments across the U.S., Canada, and the Caribbean. Ross has given over 1,200 presentations on legal technology and law practice management topics. Welcome to the show, Ross. Oh, thank, thank you, guys. Glad to be here. Ron, I wonder if we could start with you and, and just kind of uh, explore this premise. We're talking about law as a, uh, technology as a, as a double-edged sword for the legal profession. Is there, is there a truth to that? Is, is this a double-edged sword? Well, I, I don't really view it that way. There, certainly it has introduced change, and there are some reduction in positions that have occurred for it uh, that have occurred through technology over time but there's been a creation of positions so I think if you look at some of the staffing ratios at least at large law firms what you'll see is the ratio of secretaries to lawyers or rather lawyers to secretaries has dropped but the ratio of IT support staff to lawyers has increased so yes there has been transition but I'm not sure there's been a net drop 
in employment because of it. I just created different opportunities for different people. Ross, how about you? What's your take on that? Well, I think like Ron, I'm, I'm not sure that I would use the terminology double-edged sword. I, I look at at uh, the changes in law practice that technology has brought, uh, falling into either one of two categories or sometimes a hybrid of both, opportunities and pitfalls. The, the, the pitfalls relate to those practices and those lawyers specifically that haven't embraced the concept that technology is now completely interwoven into substantive law practice and that it's not some separate optional base of knowledge uh, where lawyers can pass it off to a paralegal or legal assistant or an IT staffer. Uh, Areas like uh, any type of modern litigation and the electronic aspects of discovery or advising clients about the security issues related to HIPAA compliance or the technology aspects of Sarbanes-Oxley compliance, what it really means is that lawyers who, who, who essentially get the concepts of technology being interwoven in a practice become super competitors. Those, those that don't, uh, I, I think, uh, may not be aware, but that their practices are already on the decline and, and, and failing. And so I think that's the, that opportunity and pitfall paradigm that's happening today. What have you seen uh, law firms do in terms of outsourcing? Have they been moving uh, work that was previously done in-house or done even locally outside the country? Yes, I think there there has been a trend. I've kept track of the outsourcing and offshoring model for some time, and there's been a tremendous growth in the number of providers in India for offshore services. It's a lot of its litigation support, word processing, document coding, but there's increasing numbers of patent reviewers and uh, legal researchers in India. Uh, it's not clear how, uh, while there are a lot of providers, it's not clear how much work has actually moved offshore. Probably the most has been in patent work. But there's all kinds of outsourcing opportunities. So, for example, now I'm, I'm doing some work with a company called CBF based in Fargo, North Dakota. They provide outsourced secretarial services, uh, which is a relatively new office tiger, which is uh, another company that is, does it in the U.S. and in India. There are a lot of kinds of off, outsourcing and offshoring. A lot of IT departments do outsource aspects of what they do, so network management, applications development, website development. Even some firms will outsource their help desk. So there's always, some, there's always been outsourcing from payroll and travel, and now it's coming up uh, to technology and even the core practice of law. Arguably, some aspects are being outsourced. I've seen emails from Indian companies asking to do legal research and write briefs, so I presume it's even gotten to that point for basic legal work. I'm seeing a real mix of situations. I, I work primarily in small and mid-sized firms and legal departments, and what I'm seeing, I think, might be somewhat different than what large firms are facing. I'm seeing a situation currently where, where one particular smaller personal injury firm uh, in New York decided that it was frustrated with the availability of, of practice management systems that really fit their workflow situation and, in fact, didn't really incorporate automated workflow. And so several firms banded together, hired Indian programmers based in Bombay, and have been developing a product. And I'm generally, in the past, have been skeptical about these situations until I saw the product. And I have to say that this custom development, and I tend to be very much uh, cynical about any custom development projects that law firms undertake. I've, I've rarely seen anything succeed. This product, even in its early alpha stages, is visually more impressive and functionally more impressive than really any personal injury-oriented case manager on the marketplace. So I, I think what it shows is that 
number one, there is an openness to using alternative sources and offshore sources, not just for discovery services, but for actual program creation. Uh, I have another client who is uh, using Indian-based uh, coders for document assembly. They have a large base of documents. They didn't want to pay the, 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 the U.S.-based pricing for somebody to code those documents for use with the Hot Docs document assembly system, are paying a fraction of the cost, getting faster turnaround time. And my view of the documents that are coming in is they're better quality than I've seen from significantly higher-priced onshore programmers. So I think that the difference is there's significant awareness that these capabilities exist and people are actually diving in and engaging these companies instead of just uh, dipping their toes in the offshore waters. I, would, I just wanted to add one comment that uh, some can argue about the semantics, but among the large law firms, many are retaining armies of contract lawyers for document review and litigation, investigations, and antitrust second requests. And to me, that's a form of outsourcing. Um, one of the questions you have to ask is if you can actually routinize that process enough, and I think large law firms need to routinize it further, then it makes sense to explore actually reviewing the documents offshore as well. I hear stories that there are offshore document reviews going on, although no one's come forward with an actual case study that I know of. Well, it sounds like a difference, though, between what Ross is talking about and what Ron is talking about is is Ross is talking about outshore, uh, outsourcing of technology development in, in uh, Ron, in some cases, what you're talking about is, is outsourcing of, of what might be considered the actual legal work. And it seems like that the latter is more discomforting to, to at least to some clients and to some outside the law firm. Is that a fair distinction? Oh, I, I, I think it is. One of the things that, that I've been seeing developing, and, and I have several colleagues uh, who have been longtime litigators who have developed, I think, significant aptitude in electronic discovery matters, are are offering their services uh, on a contract basis, uh, essentially as uh, an intermediate stage of counsel, uh, call it National Discovery Council, where the focus simply is to bring the, both the technology expertise intertwined with the litigation experience to law firms that simply don't have that capability, regardless of size, uh, and, and, and don't want to go through the, the cumbersome, time-consuming, and expensive process of necessarily hiring that kind of staff, particularly when there's an urgent situation. So I, I think what we're seeing is an intermediate class of American lawyers who are journeyman specialists in these areas providing contract services. And I, and I think that's one of those situations where there may be more of a comfort factor, particularly from perhaps a, even a communication perspective, an oral communication perspective. Sometimes uh, American lawyers may be more comfortable with American voices and American accents in situations particularly where there may be actual testimony provided on the record. Right, and I would agree, I certainly agree with that, uh, a couple of comments on that. One is there are some large law firms that are, in fact, bringing that kind of position in-house, but I agree with you, Ross, that uh, right now either because the, the expertise is limited or the opportunities that, that a lot of times you have no choice because of uh, requirements to bring someone in as an expert. but. That, that person is acting as what I call the translation layer, listening to the legal and business requirements and then putting in a plan and supervising the actual work, the actual document review work, then that, that's often being done it, sometimes in physically separate space from where the main lawyers are. And so whether, you know, who does that, whether it's your firm's associates, full-time staff lawyers, contract lawyers, or ultimately lawyers in India, it's, you face some of the same distance management issues. Yeah, I think what we're seeing, Ron, is really the, the virtualization of litigation case preparation and that people are, are, are or firms are, are finding that 
that location really is irrelevant. And, and the interesting parallel is the kinds of things that you and I do in the legal technology consulting world often have been in that same kind of model with clients that may be far flung across uh, across North America or across the world, and it's very routine to provide services remotely. I, I have clients who have who have become very good friends after 20 years of working with them, and I've never met them in person. And, and that seemed normal in the legal technology world. That's now becoming not at all uncommonplace in the litigation case preparation world. I, know, I think that's a good point, and certainly the, the dot-com era may have bust, but we have a lot of positive things that have come out of that, and one of it is the increasing virtualization and the fact that people are much more comfortable generally, not just in the legal market, with this idea that you may form a relationship by phone or email and, and never or rarely meet a person, yet have a high degree of trust in him or her. Well, what it really allows, uh, it's sort of going from dot-com to dot-everywhere and dot-anywhere and dot-anytime. And I think what's, what's happening is it's allowing law firms and legal departments to pick and choose among really the creme de la creme of outsourced services, whether it's that sort of national intermediate discovery council or their legal technologists or their litigation technologists uh, or their jury management advisors, and, and not feeling that they have to use a, a live body in their local community. And it changes the scale of everything. In many respects, it can level any playing field, or it can tip the hand from one side of an argument to another based on simply who you know and who you're connected with from a virtual perspective. I think, Bob, I think that Bob and I have a couple of questions we want to ask you guys in here. One of them that I had is... <laughs> we could just um, go home, Craig. That's okay. Yeah, we... <laughs> I, one of the ones I wanted to ask was, do you see this as leveling the playing field between big firms and small firms, or is this creating a wider divide because only larger firms can afford the kind of uh, economies of scale that that are uh, benefited from outsourcing? Uh, I think it's leveling the playing field. There are smaller firms that are able to draw upon the resources of consultants, of outsourcing companies, and even without the outsourcing, there are small firms that, you know, I, I work in a home office, and the only thing I feel hampered about is not having a big copy machine. But I really need a big copy machine anyway because I really deal with paper. And I'm not, I'm a consultant, but there are lawyers who can work from, from their home because the tools are very easy and affordable now, and so smaller firms can flourish. They don't need the big overhead of large firms. Well, I, and I would, I would entirely agree with Ron on this, and I, I think that, that the leveling of the playing field comes in, in a number of different areas. One is certainly the accessibility and the availability of expertise that, that might otherwise not have been available, perhaps in a rural community. But number two, I think it really gives law, small law firms, set, business-savvy small law firms, a significant economic edge because the large law firm is carrying enormous overhead of people that may or may not be fully utilized, particularly from a staffing perspective on a daily basis. The small law firm doesn't have to pay for that expertise on an ongoing, every two weeks, got to make the payroll kind of basis, finds the experts when they need them, whether it's additional legal secretarial service or it's outsourced paralegal services or outsourced litigation services or outsourced technology services. So I think the, the truly business-savvy small law, law firm now has a significant economic edge and profitability edge as well. But so what, what, you're, what you're saying, though, here is that outsourcing has really become the status quo and that we shouldn't be thinking about outsourcing as, as a matter of overseas or domestic, but outsourcing is taking place both overseas and domestically in all aspects of law practice. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say, Bob, that uh, I, I think the distinction between onshore and offshore is becoming less and less relevant. I think what it's come down to is 
who has the best base of contacts and outlook so that they can reach out and, and establish these relationships. And I think the key is for any, especially for a small law, law firm that's using outsourced services, is to understand that, that those companies that are most capable will be in high demand. And the key is to have established contracts in place so that when the, when the need comes, particularly if it's an urgent need, one is prioritized at the top of the list rather than than at the bottom of the list for those that just show up and knock on the door. So what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that I think even the concept of the terminology outsourcing will begin to fade away. I think what we're seeing is the redevelopment of modern law practice. It's just the but, ordinary but course of doing how does this How does this change the role of the lawyer in all of this? I mean, the, the lawyer who has the primary relationship with the client becomes kind of a, a, a manager of a team. A, a project manager, really. Uh, the brain trust and then the project manager, somebody who can sit at the 30,000-foot level direct activity and perhaps be the primary point of contact with the client with a, a veritable army of sort of Many assistants that may be insourced and outsourced behind them. I agree, and let me put that in terms that uh, it's, a, it's a little bit uh, cliche, but we, we often hear folks talk about finders, minders, and grinders. And at least in large law firms, the finder is the proverbial rainmaker, the person who brings in the business. The minder is the person, the lawyer who manages the relationship, and then the grinders are the ones who do the actual work. And I think what outsourcing allows to occur is. The finding is high-touch, personal, often in-person. Likewise, with the minding, but the grinding, the actual doing of the work, that can, in many instances, be done almost anywhere. So I think the model can change, and that's one reason smaller firms are able to exist, because they may be very good at finding and minding, and they may be pretty good at uh, doing the actual work, but they can find multiple ways to do the actual work. Guys, let's take a look at insourcing for just a second and turn it toward what happens inside law firms. What kind of changes are you seeing uh, lawyers adopting? I mean, you said that you're not using a copier. I presume you're using a scanner. Uh, what are the kinds of changes are you seeing happening in small and larger law firms? Well, there's a, a couple of trends in insourcing. Uh, one is, uh, I mean, and this is probably in, in a sense at the extreme, and I'm uh, just because there are not too many other firms that have done it, but you look at Oric, which is a very large law firm, and they've built an operations center in Wheeling, West Virginia, and centralized a lot of their IT, HR, and finance staff there. So that's a form of insourcing to consolidate staff, back, back office functions in a low-cost location. You know, in a way, it's sort of outsourced insourcing. Yeah. Well, and that's really what, you know, that, I guess insourcing isn't that well-defined. So, so that's, that's one form. Another, and this is pretty old and has been out there, if you talk about, you know, outsource, insource, mail rooms and copy centers have for many years been run by companies like Pitney Bowes or Xerox. So that, that function has, has been given over. All right, we're going to take a short break right now and uh, have much more discussion about the double-edged sword of legal technology when we return. So uh, stay with Coast to Coast. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. 
As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. Our guests today are Ron Friedman, president of Prism Legal Consulting, and Ross Codner, president and founder of Wisconsin's Microlaw Incorporated. And there's a golden opportunity here that I just really don't want to pass up when we've got two experts of your caliber. Describe for our listeners who are mostly lawyers uh, and some people that, that are not, but if you have the an opportunity to say to them, what kind of computer equipment, hardware should they have in their office, and what type of uh, software do lawyers need to have just to kind of be up and running in this basic uh, technological world? I, I would say from my end, and I've been preaching this for, for years on the speaking circuit uh, and in my articles, the, the, the core of any law practice really needs to be some sort of automated practice management system. And, and frankly, I don't care what, which product it is, but the idea of having any product and then have it interwoven into the firm's processes. Uh, and that system then as a subset would have, of course, uh, an integrated billing and accounting system, uh, integrated or connected document management systems. And, and my view is that, that tr- the transition that allows is to make the transition from viewing a paper file as the primary sacred file and the electronic information in a file secondary to absolutely the other way around. It's significantly easier, less expensive, much more flexible, uh, and much more compatible from a collaborative perspective to have a client matter file be primarily electronic in focus. It allows this kind of virtualization that we're talking about. It allows the easy sharing of information with outsourced experts. And it also means that from an in-source perspective, in terms of one's own IT functionality, uh, it allows greater consistency, greater control over the information, better backup capabilities both on-site and off-site. And, and I think that there is still a surprisingly slow revolution in this direction. Uh, in small and mid-sized firms, I see much more activity in this area than in large firms where I'm guessing the simple practical matter that it's much harder to get consensus about a particular case management direction when you've got 1,500 lawyers versus when you have 15 lawyers. But I think that that's the critical key direction for firms to be able to make. I completely agree with Ross's comments analysis there. 
and <clears throat> agree, especially that it is harder in large law firms to go paperless. I, I agree that's the goal. In terms of what lawyers need, it very much depends on your business requirements. I, I personally don't obsess that much about hardware. I think for a basic desktop or notebook computer, first you have to decide which, if you travel at all, you should have a lightweight but powerful computer. And there are plenty of brands to choose from, and it does not pay to stint on that because it's your primary working tool. Ron, isn't it interesting how, um, and I know you've been in business a long time, I've been doing this for over 20 years, how 10 years ago the first emphasis and discussion with any client was focused on hardware. And today, how utterly insignificant that discussion is as so much componentry has become commoditized and firms that have gotten burned by underbuying, now, if, if anything, there's more of a tendency to make sure that they, they buy right or slightly overbuy in terms of capabilities not to get into those traps. But it becomes a very short discussion, and people are much more interested on the front office side of things now, right. which is gratifying. Uh, absolutely. And the only people who spend a lot of time talking about hardware are enthusiasts or Hobbyist. Pocket protector wearers, and you got to love yeah. them, but, but it's a lot less important. Yeah, and I would say, but let me, let me add about one very important practical tip as I sit here in my home office, is to have two screens. I think the productivity gains from that are enormous, and so I have my notebook screen, which is the size of a notebook screen. It's fairly big because I have a wide form factor notebook, which I personally like, but then I have a 19-inch external monitor. The two monitors, just using basic Windows XP software, or what's called virtualized, so I can move back and forth between the two monitors. And that is something that is shocking how few people use it, given that the benefit, it's very easy to do, and the benefit to me is absolutely enormous. Your reference to 10 years ago uh, just gave me the, the segue I was looking for, because I, in preparing for this interview, I happened to come across an article I wrote 10 years ago for Law Office Computing Magazine uh, that was titled, Empowered or Enslaved, Technology's Effect on the Profession. And, and ironically, uh, I interviewed a lawyer who was talking about, the, believe it or not, the fax machine. Uh, this is just 10 years ago, but how how the fax machine had changed the pace of technology. And, and he said that uh, one of the downsides of that is that it, it deprived the lawyers of their ability to, to deliberate on problems. Uh, he said that, you know, when... Uh, when we when we get to the point where we as lawyers are constantly trying to keep up with the pace of technology, we lose the deliberative part of the law. Uh, well, if the facts was doing that, <laughs> where are we now, and and what has been the impact on on how we practice law? Well, I, I had an interesting conversation with a with a conference attendee actually just just this week in in uh, in, in Duluth, Minnesota, and the, the conversation was that that he was fascinated by the new technology that his office was using, but what he really wondered was. Was he, in fact, personally any more efficient than he was in 1990 when he was using WordPerfect 5.1 for DOS, an old program called WordPerfect Library that more or less let you run multiple programs and task switch like you can do in Windows? Uh, and he had a, a DOS, uh, in his case, the Tabs 3 billing system. Uh, and he, he made some really disturbingly valid arguments, but I think what he really was saying is that that in order for technology to do what it needs to do today, it, you, in a sense, need to really de-emphasize the technology and just re-emphasize law practice, process, and procedures and view technology the way it always should have been viewed, and that is just a means to the end of, of, of practicing more intelligently, delivering a better quality work product to a client, potentially maximizing a profit margin while at the same time reducing the retail cost of legal services. In other words, a more sophisticated version of better, faster, and cheaper. His point was that if you focus on the technology, there are so many distractions today, it's actually easy to become less productive with all of these tools and, 
you know, maybe perhaps sometimes we call them toys, although it's better not to use the word toys because toys aren't tax deductible. Well, that, and, and is efficiency always a good thing? I mean, is faster necessarily better? I guess that's the question. No, the market, I think, requires it. Unfortunately, clients, large and small, are not in a very good position to evaluate how long the work should take. But increasingly, I hear, even from lawyers at large firms, that there is pressure from clients to have work turned around quickly, both because there are genuine business deadlines driving the work, but because they don't want lawyers over-investing. And that's another factor is, the, it's hard to quantify, but I believe there are clients who wait until fairly close to the deadline they have because then they send the client an email and say, I need this advice, because that's the only way to meet or some lawyers is you say, I need this advice in two hours, and then you've got to reply by email and you can only bill two hours, and you've got to really put down your thoughts carefully in those two hours. You can't go off and do two days of research, but it's not just the technology. It's those clients are tired of paying high bills. Oh yeah, I, I agree, Ron, and 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 I, and I see it. I see it two ways. I think there may be some differential between corporate clients who are doing anything possible to put a leash on on outside counsel and and, and have them either work within a fixed budget uh, or just simply reduce legal fees or reduce legal fees by hiring more in-house counsel and doing less outsourcing. But I see this maybe a little bit differently on the side of smaller law firms representing individuals. And in, in, in an area like estate planning, for example, one, one, one attendee at a conference recently said, you know, I'm using document assembly and I can generate a full estate planning packet that's a better quality than I could ever do before I started using these tools, and I can do it in about two hours. And, of course, I can't bill hourly. It's a flat fee package. But there's also the perception that if the product is delivered too quickly to the client, there's the fear that the client might perceive that not enough thought and expertise was embedded into the product, so it's not worth as much. And so this lawyer said that what they do is they finish it, they sit on it two or three days, and then deliver it to their client. And I guess what I'm pointing out is that this era of instancy of communication and expectation that we live in has created some bizarre timing situations in terms of the creation and delivery of legal services. Well, we're just about ready to wrap up, and so what we'd like to get your final thoughts about is beyond the practice management software that you're recommending, what's the other number one thing that you preach to your clients? Well, this is, it, um, I, I go back to business requirements. Understand what your business and practice requirements are and let your systems, hardware, software, and support follow from what your business and practice needs are. And, and I, I would, I, I, Ron and I really, uh, Ron, I don't think we've ever actually met before, but I'm, I'm surprised at how consistent our thoughts are. My view is very similar, and that is one of the great gaps in legal education typically is that, that few, if any, law schools have any classes that teach uh, us lawyers how to be business people. And so doing anything possible to increase business acumen, I think, makes a lawyer a, a super competitor. The other side of that is then interweaving those common business practices into law practice. Also accepting that modern technology infused into law practice is, number one, become interwoven with substantive practice. You can't avoid learning about these things. So listen to programs like this one. Go to CLE programs about technology because technology is no longer about technology. It's about modern substantive law practice. Great. If our listeners would are interested in getting a hold of the two of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, for, for Ron, it's uh, either email ron at prismlegal, P-R-I-S-M-L-E-G-A-L dot com, no punctuation, or 703-527-2381. And I can be reached at R. Codner, that's R-K-O-D. 
E-N-E-R, at microlaw.com or, or via my website at microlaw.com. Happy to chat with any listeners who are looking for more elaboration on the topics we've talked about. And let me just add that Ron Ron is also part of the Law.com blog network, and you can find his blog through right on the front page of Law.com. Right, or at prismlegal.com. Great. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion, and Bob, I guess we will be talking again next week. We will. This has been great. Uh, fascinating guest. I wish we could talk all afternoon. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to be with us today. See you next week, Craig. Thanks for, thanks for having us. And thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.